Have you ever experienced the comfort of sleeping on a buckwheat pillow? I hadn't until I received my first Hello Pillow several years ago. I was already familiar with the sensation, having used a versatile brick-shaped pillow filled with buckwheat as my favorite yoga and meditation prop for years. When my Hello Pillow arrived, I was struck by its substantial weight, reminiscent of a large, natural beanbag. The premium quality stitching confirmed its durability, and upon unzipping it, I found it brimming with buckwheat filling, just as expected. Since then, Hullo kindly sent us a second pillow to try, and now we have his and hers Hullos. You too can experience this comfort by visiting hullopillow.com slash snoozecast for a discount on multiple pillows. So if this sounds like a good deal to you, please go to hellopillow.com slash snoozecast for up to $20 off per pillow when you buy multiple pillows, plus free shipping on every order. Again, that's H-U-L-L-O pillow.com slash snoozecast. And in doing so, you'll not only be investing in a good quality, natural pillow to help you sleep better, but you'll also be supporting SnoozeCast. Now, on to tonight's episode. subscribed and written a review yet, please do. A big thank you to all of our fans who have taken the time to do so already. Please know that we read and appreciate every single review and all the feedback, suggestions, and snoozy love in each one. This episode is supported by Dark Country Roads. Tonight, as the final episode of our October classic horror series, we'll be reading the opening to the Dunwich Horror, written in 1928 by H.P. Lovecraft. It takes place in Dunwich, a fictional town in central Massachusetts. It is considered one of the core stories of the Cthulhu mythos. central Massachusetts takes the wrong fork at the junction of the Aylesbury Pike just beyond Dean's Corners 
he comes upon a lonely and curious country. The ground gets higher, and the brier-bordered stone walls press closer and closer against the ruts of the dusty, curving road. The trees of the frequent forest belts seem too large, and the wild weeds, brambles, and grasses attain a luxuriance not often found in settled regions. At the same time, the planted fields appear singularly few and barren, while the sparsely scattered houses wear a surprising uniform aspect of age, squalor, and dilapidation. Without knowing why, one hesitates to ask directions from the gnarled, solitary figures spied now and then on crumbling doorsteps or in the sloping, rock-strewn meadows. Those figures are so silent and furtive that one feels somehow confronted by forbidden things with which it would be better to have nothing to do. When a rise in the road brings the mountains in view above the deep woods, the feeling of strange uneasiness is increased. The summits are too rounded and symmetrical to give a sense of comfort and naturalness. And sometimes the sky silhouettes with a special clearness the queer circles of tall stone pillars with which most of them are crowned. Gorges and ravines of problematic depth intersect the way, and the crude wooden bridges always seem of dubious safety. When the road dips again, there are stretches of marshland that one instinctively dislikes, and indeed almost fears at evening when unseen whippoorwills chatter and the fireflies come out in abnormal profusion to dance at the raucous, creepily insistent rhythms of stridently piping bullfrogs. The thin, shining line of Miskatonic's upper reaches has an oddly serpent-like suggestion as it winds close to the feet of the domed hills among which it rises. As the hills draw nearer, one heeds their wooded sides more than their stone-crowned tops. Those sides loom up so darkly and precipitously that one wishes they would keep their distance, but there is no road by which to escape them. Across a covered bridge, one sees a small village huddled between the stream and the vertical slope of Round Mountain and wonders at the cluster of rotting gambrel roofs bespeaking an earlier architectural period than that of the neighboring region. It is not reassuring to see, on a closer glance, that most of the houses are deserted and falling to ruin, and that the broken steepled church now harbors the one slovenly mercantile establishment of the hamlet. One dreads to trust the tenebrous tunnel of the bridge, yet there is no way to avoid it. Once across, it is hard to prevent the impression 
of a faint, malign odor about the village street, as of the massed mold and decay of centuries. It is always a relief to get clear of the place and to follow the narrow road around the base of the hills and across the level country beyond till it rejoins the Aylesbury Pike. Afterward, one sometimes learns that one has been through Dunwich. Outsiders visit Dunwich as seldom as possible. And since a certain season of horror, all the signboards pointing toward it have been taken down. The scenery, judged by any ordinary aesthetic canon, is more than commonly beautiful. Yet there is no influx of artists or summer tourists. Two centuries ago, when talk of witch blood, Satan worship, and strange forest presences was not laughed at. It was the custom to give reasons for avoiding the locality. In our sensible age, since the Dunwich Horror of 1928 was hushed up by those who had the towns and the world's welfare at heart, people shun it without knowing exactly why. Perhaps one reason though it cannot apply to uninformed strangers, is that the natives are now repellently decadent. Having gone far along that path of retrogression so common in many New England backwaters, they have come to form a race by themselves with the well-defined mental and physical stigmata of degeneracy and inbreeding. The average of their intelligence is woefully low. The old gentry, representing the two or three armigerous families, came from Salem in 1692, have kept somewhat above the general level of decay. Though many branches are sunk into the sordid populace so deeply that only their names remain as a key to the origin they disgrace. Some of the bishops still send their eldest sons to Harvard and Miskatonic, though those sons seldom return to the moldering gambrel roofs under which they and their ancestors were born. No one, even those who have the facts concerning the recent horror, can say just what is the matter with Dunwich, though old legends speak of unhallowed rites and conclaves of the Indians, amidst which they called forbidden shapes of shadow out of the great rounded hills, and made wild prayers that were unanswered by loud crackings and rumblings from the ground below. In 1747, the Reverend Hoadley, newly come to the Congregational Church at Dunwich Village, preached a memorable sermon on the close presence of Satan and his imps, in which he said, It must be allowed that these blasphemies of an infernal train of demons are matters of too common knowledge to be denied. The cursed voices of Azazel and Buzrael, of Beelzebub and Belial, being heard from underground 
by above a score of credible witnesses now living. I myself did not more than a fortnight ago catch a very plain discourse of evil powers in the hill behind my house, wherein there were a rattling and a rolling, groaning, screeching, and hissing, such as no things of this earth could raise up, and which must needs have come from those caves that only black magic can discover, and only the devil unlock. Mr. Hoadley disappeared soon after delivering this sermon, but the text, printed in Springfield, is still extant. Noises in the hills continued to be reported from year to year and still form a puzzle to geologists and physiographers. Other traditions tell of foul odors near the hill-crowning circles of stone pillars and of rushing airy presences to be heard faintly at certain hours from stated points at the bottom of the great ravines, while still others try to explain the devil's hopyard, a bleak, blasted hillside where no tree, shrub, or grass blade will grow. Then, too, the natives are mortally afraid of the numerous whippoorwills which grow vocal on warm nights. It is vowed that the birds are psychopomps lying in wait for the souls of the dying and that they time their airy cries in unison with the sufferer's struggling breath. If they can catch the fleeing soul when it leaves the body, they instantly flutter away, chittering in demonic laughter. But if they fail, they subside gradually into a disappointed silence. These tales, of course, are obsolete and ridiculous because they come down from very old times. Dunwich is indeed ridiculously old, older by far than any of the communities within 30 miles of it. South of the village, one may still spy the cellar walls and chimney of the ancient bishop house, which was built before 1700, whilst the ruins of the mill at the falls, built in 1806, form the most modern piece of architecture to be seen. Industry did not flourish here, and the 19th century factory movement proved short-lived. Oldest of all are the great rings of rough-hewn stone columns on the hilltops, but these are more generally attributed to the natives than to the settlers. Deposits of skulls and bones found within these circles and around the sizable table-like rock on Sentinel Hill 
sustain the popular belief that such spots were once the burial places of the Pakmataks, even though many entomologists, disregarding the absurd improbability of such a theory, persist in believing the remains Caucasian. It was in the township of Dunwich, in a large and partly inhabited farmhouse set against a hillside four miles from the village and a mile and a half away from any other dwelling, that Wilbur Watley was born at 5 a.m. on Sunday, the 2nd of February, 1913. This date was recalled because it was Candlemas, which people in Dunwich curiously observe under another name, and because the noises in the hills had sounded, and all the dogs of the countryside had barked persistently throughout the night before. Less worthy of notice was the fact that the mother was one of the decadent Watleys, a somewhat deformed, unattractive albino woman of 35, living with an aged and half-insane father about whom the most frightful tales of wizardry had been whispered in his youth. Lavinia Watley had no known husband, but according to the custom of the region, made no attempt to disavow the child, concerning the other side of whose ancestry the country folk might, and did, speculate as widely as they chose. On the contrary, she seemed strangely proud of the dark, goatish-looking infant who formed such a contrast to her own sickly and pink-eyed albinism, and was heard to mutter many curious prophecies about its unusual powers and tremendous future. Lavinia was one who would be apt to mutter such things, for she was a lone creature given to wandering amidst thunderstorms in the hills and trying to read the great odorous books which her father had inherited through two centuries of Watleys and which were fast falling to pieces with age and wormholes. She had never been to school but was filled with disjointed scraps of ancient lore that old Watley had taught her. The remote farmhouse had always been feared because of old Watley's reputation for black magic and the unexplained death by violence of Mrs. Watley when Lavinia was 12 years old had not helped to make the place popular. Isolated amongst strange influences, Lavinia was fond of wild and grandiose daydreams and singular occupations, nor was her leisure much taken up by household cares in a home from which all standards of order and cleanliness had long since disappeared. There was a hideous screaming which echoed above even the hill noises and the dogs barking on the night Wilbur was born.
but no known doctor or midwife presided at his coming. Neighbors knew nothing of him till a week afterward, when old Watley drove his sleigh through the snow into Dunwich Village and discoursed incoherently to the group of loungers at Osborne's general store. There seemed to be a change in the old man, an added element of furtiveness in the clouded brain which subtly transformed him from an object to a subject of fear. Though he was not to be perturbed by any common family event, amidst it all, he showed some trace of the pride later noticed in his daughter, and what he said of the child's paternity was remembered by many of his hearers years afterward. I don't care what folks think. If Lafreny's boy looked like his pa, he wouldn't look like nothing you expect. You needn't think the only folks is the folks hereabouts. Lavinia's read some, and has said some things the most you only tell about. I'll calculate her man is as good a husband as you can find this side of Aylesbury. And if you knowed as much about the hills as I do, you wouldn't ask no better church wedding nor hearing. Let me tell you something. Some days you folks hear a child little Vinny's a-callin', his father's name on the top of old Sentinel Hill. The only persons who saw Wilbur during the first month of his life were old Zacharia Watley of the undecayed Watleys and Earl Sawyer's common-law wife, Mamie Bishop. Mamie's visit was frankly one of curiosity, and her subsequent tales did justice to her observations. But Zakaria came to lead a pair of Alderney cows which old Watley had bought off his son Curtis. This marked the beginning of a course of cattle buying on the part of small Wilbur's family, which ended only in 1928 when the Dunwich Horror came and went. Yet at no time did the ramshackle Watley barn seem overcrowded with livestock. There came a period when people were curious enough to steal up and count the herd that grazed precariously on the steep hillside above the old farmhouse, and they could never find more than ten or twelve anemic bloodless-looking specimens. Evidently, some blight or distemper perhaps sprung from the unwholesome pasturage or the diseased fungi and timbers of the filthy barn caused a heavily mortally amongst the Watley animals. Odd wounds or sores having something of the aspect of incisions, seemed to afflict the visible cattle. And once or twice, during the earlier months, certain callers fancied that they could discern similar sores.